Recorded live as the sun sets, it's Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Jamie Rodriguez and my pronouns are she, her also. I'm the general counsel of the Transformation Thursday podcast network. Last month, Amy and I discussed the Supreme Court's opinion in Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia and how it may impact the LGBTQ plus community. Tonight, we are embarking on a multi-episode journey exploring the historical development of LGBTQ plus rights. It's a story with roots in the passage of the 14th Amendment immediately after the Civil War. But before we embark on this legal odyssey, we will be right back after this short message. This is Jamie Rodriguez, the General Counsel of the Transformation Thursday Podcast Network, here to remind you that Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved, 2021. You can support Transformation Thursday by leaving the podcast a five-star rating and writing a short review on Apple Podcasts. It's free and helps get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. On Twitter and Instagram, Follow us at TransThursPod. On Facebook, you can follow the podcast by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Jamie Rodriguez, and my pronouns are she, her. Jamie, welcome back. We've talked a lot about uh, recent court decisions and the impact on LGBTQ rights. We've mentioned the Supreme Court's opinions in Bostick last year. Uh, the city, or excuse me, the Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia this year. And, you know, I'm also interested in some historical context, if you don't mind, because you know me, I'm kind of a historical geek. And how do these cases fit into the development of gay rights? And what do they mean for the future? You know, Amy, I think that's a really great question. I think it's important to understand some history so we can really understand the arguments that are being made um, on both sides in these cases, not just you know, Fulton and Bostick, but like the, the kind of ongoing fight for LGBT rights that we're seeing right now. And I think understanding the history of the legal arguments will help us to kind of predict where the future is going or where different sides of the Supreme Court would take us if their views kind of carried the day. Well, in our introduction a little bit ago, we mentioned going back to Reconstruction, and that's and that's the 1870s, and that's that's a long way back. To be clear, in the 1870s, we're not specifically talking LGBTQ issues, but we are talking about the 14th Amendment and what that means, and how that is rolled out to the states, and how that has been applied over the years. So. That's, I think, some of the original tracings, but it's not until we get to some other cases, probably what, mid 20th century that we start seeing more stuff in case law regarding, you know, gay and LGBTQ, right? Yeah, you know, I think of kind of three arcs of or, or groupings of cases, and I like to call the first group the, the decriminalization of being gay, if you will. And so there was... Um, Bowers versus Hardwick in 1986, and that kind of led up to um, uh, Lawrence v. Texas um, in 2003. And so that's kind of an arc of, of cases. Um, and then there's the uh, fight for marriage equality ending with Obergefell. And so that's kind of the next story. And then 
you know, post Obergefell, there's been this continued push for what I like to call, you know, complete equality. Yes, we had marriage equality after Obergefell, but, you know, there were still issues with discrimination in employment, for example, as was addressed in Bostick. So I think we're in the midst of that fight for full equality, if you will. We're not, and we're not quite there. You know, the religious um, institutions are really pushing back and trying to claim a religious basis for discrimination. So, so that's why I think it's, it's important to look at all of those. And I think it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit too much to do in one episode. So I think, you know, what we're going to do here is break it into three or four episodes where we kind of take um, a, a small chunk of, of each of these stories. But you're right, you know, we're not going all the way back to the 1870s to much tonight. You know, we may talk touch on it a little bit, but, you know, the underlying legal theories that support some of these cases do trace their history back, you know, to to the post-Civil War era when the 14th Amendment was passed and and the um, underlying rights under the Bill of Rights were began to be incorporated onto the states. Um, well, you said a lot in there, so I, I want to parse a couple things out because that's what I tend to do in our conversations and other interviews that I do. And you and you mentioned in there that com- that fight for complete equality is what that we're, we're in the midst of right now, and we see six very powerful allies sitting on the Supreme Court of those who are quote unquote defending religious freedom. And or as we would view it as that legalization of discrimination or the continued right to discriminate based on a sincere religious belief. So this fight is not over by any stretch, is it? No. And I, I guess one person's ally is, is another person's enemy. I, I, I don't like to use the word ally for that side. But, uh, you know, um, you're right. There is at least five votes on the Supreme Court now that are very deferential to religion. You know, I think in some cases, the Chief Justice goes along with those other five. And so we're going to get cases that, you know, defend religious liberties. The court has not specifically said that there's a religious right to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. That wasn't the holding in, in Fulton. But I don't, I don't know if that case might come, something that puts that squarely before the court. I th- and I think that's, as we talked about last time, the Fulton case, I kind of saw the Chief Justice trying to find another way to come out with the result that he wanted, which was letting Catholic Church win, but not actually the, coming out with a Supreme Court holding that said they won because religious institutions have a right to discriminate against um, LGBTQ people. You know, they wanted to do it on a different basis. But based on that super long opinion or adjoinment, whatever it is, you know, concurrence written by, was it Thomas or Alito? Alito, yeah. Alito. It was like 78 pages. Yeah, 78 of- page treaties out of a concurrence. So I, I think you're, I think, you know, I think your hunch is spot on. But also in Bostick last year, we also saw Gorsuch pretty much go out of his way to avoid the free exercise issue in in those cases. Yeah, I would say Bostick, I mean, he was able to go out of his way. He was able to avoid it because Bostick was really about interpreting the Civil Rights Act. So it was a it was not a it's not really a constitutional interpretation case. It's a case about interpreting the Civil Rights Act. So, yeah, um, 
And those um, were really non-religious entities. Well, not really. They Those were non-religious employers, even though some of them had religious beliefs, especially in the case of Amy Stevens. Yeah, I, I think the, um, you know, once again, the, the issue before the court in Bostick was that, uh, was that interpretation of what is because of sex mean in, in the uh, Civil Rights Act. And and there was not before the court a First Amendment free exercise claim. The Some of those institutions, some of those companies, they could have made a First Amendment claim, but they weren't, they they decided not to before the Supreme Court. So that's that's why that case, you know, while it's important, it, it's, it's a matter of um, interpretation of the Civil Rights Act, and and it's also why Gorsuch explicitly, you know, talked about a, a future free exercise claim, and he said that you know they were not deciding that issue. But as we continue to fight for equality, and we see this this year with the all the legislation against transgender athletes, especially those that are male to female, but Title Seven and Title Nine, as we discussed. You know, we had coffee recently with uh, Kate from the HRC. Those two, those two things, Title Seven and Title Nine, share a lot of jurisprudence, correct? So, you know, can you look and say, okay, based on those two things, these things are closely related, and you know, we have that on our side. Oh, you know, I agree. I, I think um, there's already been appellate court cases applying the rationale in Bostick to the educational context governed by um, Title IX of the uh, Civil Rights Act. So the interpretation of the phrase because of sex is being applied by other courts in other contexts, you know, whereas in Bostick it was Title VII and employment, you know, now you have like Adams and Grimm talking about, and kind of a good side note, I mean, this is a little bit of good news, so, you know, Graham was a case, uh, Gavin Graham in, in the Fourth Circuit, Gloucester County, Virginia, was essentially discriminated against him. He's a, um, a trans, was a trans boy at the time um, in, in high school. And, you know, he won a case in the, in the Fourth Circuit saying that the county's not providing him uh, the ability to use bathrooms uh, consistent with his gender identity, you know, was a violation of his, of his rights. And um, also Title IX of the, of the Civil Rights Act, the county actually just, not just, the county appealed that to the Supreme Court. They were going to try and get review at the Supreme Court. And um, just recently, the Supreme Court denied them cert. So that's actually a good story. You know, that, at least in the, the, we have a couple of uh, circuits with with positive holdings there, and the and the Supreme Court could have taken up that case if they had been. I would have been very concerned because that would have possibly been a signal that they were going to overturn that lower court ruling, and they chose not to uh, take on that case. We at least know of one Supreme Court justice who did want to take it on. Not surprising, um, Thomas. Yeah, I think both Alito and Thomas would have taken that case. Yeah, I think um, so too. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure in the denial of cert, Alito and Thomas said they would have taken the case. So well, thank God they didn't, or the court didn't. So, well, before we jump into these cases, let's just do a quick conversation on federal rights versus rights, ex you know, expanded to the states, because I think 
you know, one of that's been one of my great learnings in the last few months that we've been discussing this is that our our modern view of rights is not what early Americans had. And so yeah. through so through the Bill of Rights and the way we view these, they've changed over the 200 plus years that our country has been in existence. Yeah. You know, without going through a ton of case law and on all the way, all, you know, each each individual case in the Bill of Rights, the the original Bill of Rights, um, you know, the first 10 amendments were historically pre-Civil War viewed as restrictions on the exercise of the federal government's authority. And so they didn't directly apply to the states. Um, and it's not till after the Civil War when the US government seeking to ensure that black citizens in the South were, you know, full, A, treated as full citizens, and, and B, that the states couldn't deprive them of citizenship past the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment, you know, starts off saying all persons born are naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein re they reside. So that's the first clause of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And like I said, it was ensuring that anyone born in the U.S. or naturalized was a citizen. None of this, you know, uh, two-fifths of a, of a person, uh, you know, as existed prior to the 14th Amendment. Three-fifths. Um, Three-fifths, yes. And then it goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And so, you know, that kind of raises a question about what are the privileges and immunities of the of the U.S. And, and there's a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, which we're not going to go into a lot here. We could do that in another one. But essentially, the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was pretty severely restricted. And so that has not been a real basis of, of rights uh, applied to the states or to, to individuals. But the next two clauses have been. So the last two clauses of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment say, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that's the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And then, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And that's the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. And specifically, the due process clause has been the vehicle through which the Supreme Court has applied the Bill of Rights to the states. It's There's a, a legal theory called incorporation. So it's said that the rights in the Bill of Rights have been incorporated onto the th via the 14th Amendment onto the, the states. So they are not only restrictions, many of them, not all of them, but most of the rights in the Bill of Rights through a series of cases, because it didn't happen all at once. It was like, you know, one after another. The, the, the rights in the Bill of Rights now not only restrict the federal government, but they also restrict state governments because of the 14th Amendment. And that's, you know, the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. So as originally conceived, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. It's only after the 14th Amendment that they did. Well, we talk about incorporation and, you know, we've in, you know, you're talking, you know, way back, you know, 18th, 19th, early 20th century with incorporation of the Bill of Rights onto the states. But it wasn't until 2010 that the Second Amendment was incorporated into the states. So this is still playing out <laughs> in, yeah, you know, in it, recent it is, history. 
like I said, it's um, it, it it didn't happen all at once. Like the Fourteenth Amendment, upon its initial passage, you know, it's it was still left to interpretation about what the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment covered. And you know, one of the things, like I said, that that we've been discussing is it 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 provided this vehicle to incorporate rights on the states. Yeah, the uh, the Second Amendment and for a long time, it was a question: what What exactly was the scope of the of the Second Amendment? And the Heller case, the Supreme Court held that um, you know the right to to keep certain guns, certain kinds of guns, was an individual right, not just a collective militia right. And then and then a couple years later, and I think it was McDonald, they incorporated that right onto the states. So Heller was really saying there's this federal right to own at least certain kinds of guns. And then the McDonald case was when the Supreme Court applied that to the states also. So yeah, yeah, the 14th Amendment, even though it's a really old doctrine, uh, it's, you know, in the past 12 to 15 years, actually has seen some um, some action, if you will. <laughs> let's jump in then, since we talked about incorporation here, let's talk about Let's move up to more modern time. Let's jump into these three big cases that I think are that first arc, you know, that decriminalization of being gay. So where do you want to jump in with that? Yeah. And just to um, say, I think what we should do is let's kind of put a little pin in incorporation and uh, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, because it's not going to be obvious where that comes in. I think as we go through these arcs, we'll be able to refer back to that a little bit and, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll put a pin in, the, in that topic for now. What I would like to do is let's talk about, you know, Bowers v. Hardwick in, uh, in 1986. And this was a case, let me, let me give you some background. I think it's important to understand kind of the people that are involved in these Supreme Court cases. So Michael Hardwick was a gay man uh, in Atlanta and in uh, 1982, a police officer um, gave him a citation for public drinking. He saw Hardwick throw a beer into uh, a beer bottle, not a beer, into a trash can outside of a gay bar where, where Hardwick worked, you know, cited him for uh, uh, public uh, drinking. And then there's this kind of series of errors and um, comedy of errors almost. Uh, so due to a clerical error on the citation, Harderwick missed his court date. And then the officer, uh, Officer Torek is his name, he obtained a warrant for Harderwick's arrest. But then after that, Harderwick actually went and paid this $50 fine. So he pays the fine in the court. But three weeks later, Officer Torek shows up at his house to serve what is now this invalid warrant. At the time, Officer Torek, allegedly the, the door was open. So for we'll assume that that's the case. So Torek walks into the house. There's another guest sleeping on the bed. And Torek, um, you know, continues into the house, goes down the hallway and enters Hardwick's bedroom or opens the door to the bedroom where he sees Hardwick and a um, another person engaged in consensual oral sex. And so, you know, Kind of shocking, you can imagine, to all of a sudden look up and see a police officer in your uh, in your bedroom. You know, Hardwick was angry at the intrusion, and he uh, he kind of threatened Torek with having him fired. You know, some history. Torek, you know, later kind of said that he wouldn't have even issued the um, made an arrest if Hardwick hadn't quote had an attitude problem. 
So that kind of gets to the way that the laws are enforced. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Anyway, the police officer then arrests both of uh, both Harderwick and his companion for sodomy, which was a felony under Georgia law. And, you know, let me read from the Georgia code at the time, the 1984 code. It said, a person commits the offense of sodomy when he performs or submits to any sexual act involving the sex organs of one person and the mouth or anus of another. That just sounds like a whole lot of no fun. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it was a felony because it was punishable by over a year in prison and up to 20 years, you know. And so the Georgia Code actually doesn't mention anything about uh, someone being same sex or not. The, the fact that someone's same sex wasn't explicitly in the Georgia Code. But were there heterosexual couples going to jail all the time for this then? Well, there no, and that's kind of like one of the issues. So the um, you know Justice Stevens in his dissent actually spends a fair amount of time talking about how this only gets enforced against the gay community. There were, in fact, previous Supreme Court precedents which would have made it illegal to uh, unconstitutional to enforce this against you know consenting mar- uh, consenting married heterosexual couple or even. Um, an unmarried heterosexual couple. So it was only being enforced. It really was not enforced often, but if you just happen to be unlucky enough, like um, Michael Hardwick, you know, to be in, in kind of one of these situations, then, you know, and, and you were a homosexual, then it could be enforced against you under the Georgia Code. So, you know, that's kind of like a backdrop to the to the whole case. Well, I, I love here what Justice Blackman wrote in his, you know, in his opinion, only the most willful blindness could obscure the fact that sexual intimacy, a sensitive key relationship of human existence, central to family life, community welfare, and the development of human personality. Reeks of like religious exceptionalism, like sex is only for procreation purposes. And that just ignore so much of our basic human instinct you know so i mean are you like you said you know you're not going to go out and arrest heterosexual you know couples that are single you're not going to go out there and do that with married couples so it just goes back to like hey we're just gonna pick on the gay folk exactly and and i think it's interesting the language that's used in bowers you know you can tell kind of the discrimination inherent in the way they phrased what is the issue before them. You know, you can often look at a Supreme Court case and read how did the court frame the issue? And and here's the way they stated, you know, the, the majority opinion, the way they stated the issue. They stated as whether the federal constitution confers a fundamental right upon homosexuals to engage in sodomy and hence invalidates the laws of many states that still make such conduct illegal and have done so for a very long time. So when you read that phrasing of the issue before the court, you kind of know where they're going, you know? And, you know, then the, um, the, the majority opinion, you know, goes on kind of, you know, as if they're offended at this very notion to say things like, you know, Hardewick, Hardewick would have us announce a fundamental right to engage in homosexual sodomy. This we are quite unwilling to do. You know, it's like very judgmental language. And then they talk about, you know, another thing, 
we've talked about this in many contexts where the LGBTQ community, you know, trans people, for example, get treated as if our very existence is is some kind of evidence of deviance, uh, you know, and there's this long history of, you know, treating us as if we're, we are, you know, mentally ill or, or deviant in some way. And this, that bias kind of shines through in the, Bard- the, the Hardwick opinion. The, the majority, for example, said, if we limited, if limited to, the volunta- to the voluntary sexual conduct being consenting. So th- this passage comes from the, from the uh, majority opinion also. If limited to the voluntary sexual conduct between consenting adults, it would be difficult to limit the claimed right to homosexual conduct while leaving exposed to prosecution, adultery, incest, and other sexual crimes, even though they are committed in the home. We are unwilling to start down that road. So once again, the majority is using this rhetorical device of of equating gay sex with all these kind of deviant behaviors, instead of just treating it as kind of a loving act between two consenting adults, you know, they have to throw it in the the adult, the incest, uh, you know, kind of language. You know, Jamie, we get, you know, we've hung out a few times. Part of the reason I like hanging around you is just because of your deviancy. I mean, as a trans, fellow trans woman, you know, it's all about the deviancy. Just kidding. I just well, made you blush. Take it, I guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, and, and you, and you talked about Justice Blackman's, the reason he used that kind of language about, you know, sexual intimacy being a sensitive key relation of human existence is because that kind of phrasing, that kind of consideration of, you know, personal intimacy is part of the privacy right that a line of cases had been talking about before and that are actually cited or distinguished in Bowers. So, you know, there's the, the Griswold case we've mentioned a couple of times with privacy and contraception and, um, you know, Griswold, Griswold held that um, uh, married couples uh, had a right to, uh, to contraception because they had a right to privacy in their own homes. And then that was extended later um, to unmarried uh, heterosexual couples, at least. You know, and, and then Loving v. Marriage, I'm sorry, Loving v. Virginia, which talked about, um, you know, the right to the, the unconstitutionality of anti-miscegenation statutes, so the right to... Um, to marry someone of another race, you know, is, is grounded in the liberty right, you know, which goes back to that 14th Amendment and that pri- right to privacy is grounded in, in the 14th Amendment. And so all of those cases were discussed and were actually the basis of the underlying decision in, in, um, in Bowers. And so when the Supreme Court comes in, they spent time distinguishing those and they kind of just offhand said, well, those are about marriage and, you know, procreation on the one hand, and homosexual activity doesn't have anything to do with those. And they kind of say that without any real basis. They just like, oh, well, homosexual sex doesn't have anything to do with families, you know, and Blackman, you know, to his credit, and and Stevens also, they, um, yeah, you can label different kinds of activities, but they're all grounded in kind of the intimacy of individuals. But the labeling, 
I think you just hit on the perfect place for me to jump in here. It's like, that's the labeling. And I think a lot of people in cis, cis heterosexual relationships have a hard time with labeling and conceptualizing queer love, queer sex. And it gives them a permission to ask us questions that they would not ask their counterparts who are cisgender and in heterosexual relationships. How many times years ago would you hear like, oh, these two guys are, you know, living together. They're gay, whatever. Well, who plays the woman part? Who plays the man part? Who does that in lesbian couples? Who does that in that? Who, what gives a friend of mine here locally the permission to approach me in a club at a bar here and say, hey, you're dating so-and-so or this woman. How do you two have sex? Why is that any of your fucking business? Excuse my French. But it just gives a lot of people permission to seek the labels when that label it only matters to the two people in the privacy of that relationship. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, and, you know, it's kind of like labeling as an excuse for, for actual thinking, you know, it's like, oh, well, we can label these things as good and these things as deviant and, you know, and we're going to just draw these arbitrary lines based on how we label things, you know, and I think that's what Blackman was getting at is like, the underlying issue is sexual intimacy and, 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 you know, key relationships and, and Justice Stevens, you know, kind of applied, uh, you know, went, went along the same way. Let's put a pen in Justice Stevens' dissent because we're going to, that's going to come back. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I don't know. I'm still a big fan of the deviant sex. So, you know, call me crazy. <laughs> One person's deviance is another person's kink, right? So it's all fun to me. Um, so that's, you know, that's the Bowers decision, which basically upheld Georgia's um, anti-sodomy statute as applied to uh, homosexuals. Um, it was said it was not a violation of, of the Constitution to, uh, to, to find Mr. Hardwick for engaging in consensual homosexual sex. You know, and then eight years well, goes by. Oh, well, real quick, I was just going to say, that's only 1986. I know, it's not that long ago, really, you know. You, I mean, you were in college. I was in high school then. I mean, that's the AIDS epidemic and all kinds of stuff. So how do we get from there in 1986 to, and I know you're going there, but I just kind of, that's a big jump from, yes, we can discriminate and selectively target gays because of the sodomy laws, but how do we get to, hey, we have marriage equality and now we're fighting for, you know, broader equality. That's yeah, a, and you know, and we're going to get there. We won't get to the marriage um, discussion tonight, until, until next time. But um, that's thirty years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And I think I think it is important to understand the length of this, how long this has been going on, and that's why these. I think this historical um, view is, is important because, you know, you look at Hardwick and um, Bowers v. Hardwick in '86. You don't get a Burgerfell. Um, until 2013, and we still have religious institutions arguing to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. So, you know, it's not settled yet in, in it, cultural, these kind of cultural fights take a long time to play out. And, yep. and I, look at, I look at these and I think the country has largely accepted gay marriage, even, you know, latest polls show that over 50% of Republicans, it's in some categories, it's as high as 70% of even Republicans, you know, believe that that gay marriage should should still exist. And so the next battle has become, you know, the fight against trans rights, right? 
And so I feel like trans rights work. We're kind of at the beginning of that, you know, we're not as far back as, as say Bowers, but let's talk about a couple more cases. You know, we're probably somewhere in the next couple of cases that we're going to talk about uh, as far as trans rights go. When the next case I wanted to mention briefly is Romer v. Evans. This was a 1996 case and it's, it's actually not a criminalization case, but I think it's important for the, um, the, the rationale that the Supreme Court set out. So what Romer was about was uh, Colorado, which back then was a very conservative state, now is, is, is uh, you know, decidedly blue. Um, but back at that time, Colorado passed um, a, a constitutional amendment to its, its state constitution. And that amendment basically deprived, it, it essentially institutionalized or codified discrimination against the LGBTQ community. Um, it basically said, you know, homosexuals could not um, apply for um, state protection or use uh, that, use the, the fact of their, of being gay as an argument that, you know, they were being denied equal protection of the laws. And so it was a basically codified discrimination, discriminatory provision. And this was really Justice Kennedy's first first decision in, in, in these line of, of gay rights cases. And, you know, he kind of became the champion for gay rights, if you will, Justice Kennedy. But in this, in Romer, here's what, here's what Justice Kennedy said, laws singling out a certain class of citizens for disfavored legal status or general hardship are rare. A law declaring that in general, it should, it shall be more difficult for one group of citizens than for all others to seek aid from the government is itself a denial of equal protection of the laws in the most literal sense. Disqualification of a class of persons from the right to seek specific protection from the law is unprecedented in our jurisprudence. And, and therefore he went, on to, he went on to say that Amendment 2, you know, the Colorado Amendment 2, lacks a rational relationship to a legitimate state interest. And so this wasn't the first time Kennedy and, and the first time the Supreme Court just said, it doesn't even pass a rational basis test, the most lowest level of test to single out a community for discrimination. Um, and that is, a, is, a, is kind of a historical turning point in, in, in the Supreme Court's thinking. You know, these kind of categorical exclusions of of homosexuals or you know the LGBTQ community, large the larger community uh, as we would look at it now, those are just not going to be upheld. Um, well, and there's a larger there's a lot of things going on in the in the early to mid 1990s that are pushing this forward that are pushing these state amendments. Colorado was not the only state that had this come up. So we look back at you know California had Prop Eight. Back in 2008, Arizona had something in 2006. There's a, just a crap ton of states that, were, that went through this process, you know, but Hawaii was the one that started this, the Defense of Marriage Act and all that stuff in the mid 1990s. And, you know, I'm with, you know, but you also look at the Mormon Church and some of their proclamations and some of the stuff that they wrote coming out of the 90s around this time 
plays into this, you know, they have something in the Mormon church called the proclamation on the family that declares, you know, marriages between a man and a woman, da, 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 and, you know, but that document, that proclamation has been also used as an amicus brief, you know, in Hawaii case, other cases around the country and other cases around the world to legitimize that discrimination against gay communities. And so oh, this, is, right. this, this is this huge culture war that I don't think a lot of us on the left pay enough attention to. Well, yeah, and and in the early '90s was when the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy was passed in the in the military. So that was, and I was in the Air Force in the early '90s, and I I've heard that rumor before. What I've heard that rumor. <laughs> I I remember that policy, and I mean, I would never defend "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" as a it, kind of like on its face. It forced a lot of service members to stay in the closet because if they came out, they would be, they could be discharged, you know, and, and I knew service members who, you know, after a while being in the closet, a terrible place to be, you know, you, you can't tell your, you can't tell people, you can't confide in people. It's, it's just incredibly stressful to hide a part of yourself that way. And, you know, I, and I knew people who just after several years, they were, really good, perfectly good officers who decided to get out, you know, and wasted, it was, it was a complete waste of, of their skills and experience and the money that the, the military had put in to them to, to lose their service. Um, so all of that was going on in, in the early nineties, at least don't ask, don't tell was a step forward. Cause prior to that, you know, even if you were, I, even if, you know, pe- people could be asked on, uh, you know, security clearance, uh, uh, periodic security clearance uh, investigations, whether they were gay. And, you know, if, if someone found out, they could be kicked out. So and and in fact, the military would actually, you know, go after people and, and scope out, you know, local bars, for example. Um, so it was it was it was a small step, a small improvement. But, you know, I wish it had not taken until the Obama administration in 2012, I believe it was, when when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was finally repealed. And I'm sitting here reminded of sitting in the closet, that metaphorical closet of coming out is such a dangerous place to be from a mental health standpoint, you know, and I've been honest about it on this podcast. I've been honest about it in our conversations privately. I mean, for me, that was the genesis for, you know, my suicide ideation. And as well as you know, the process of coming out started there. So I can understand why somebody would be in that situation and say, you know, I pretty much, I can see somebody saying, I have a choice of living or staying in the military. And that's, that's probably becomes, but then, like you said, we lose this a huge amount of capital and, you know, intellect and all this stuff that we put into our soldiers and our airmen and our seamen and our Marines and all these stuff. So, you know, it's it's sad to see these people go. And, you know, that reminds Brie Fram was on our pot on the podcast a couple of years ago, but it would have been a great shame to see her leave the military a few years ago just because she's transgender. I mean, a literal rocket scientist, you just don't want that type of knowledge base just walking out the door because, oh, sorry, your type's not wanted here. Oh, no, exactly. And um, yeah, and, you know, one thing Romer didn't do, though, you know, Romer v. Evans was uh, was about the, that Colorado constitutional amendment. It didn't have any impact on the the Bowers v. Hardwick case. So Bowers v. Was... Hardwick was still, you know, the law of the land as of 
as a roamer, but it was a signal that, you know, thinking was changing, right? And so so that goes, that was in 96. It wasn't until 2003 in Lawrence v. Texas when, when uh, Bowers finally gets overturned. And so I want to talk about Lawrence. Um, you know, in Lawrence, Lawrence, uh, the... Um, the underlying facts took place in Harris County, um, Texas, and uh, Harris County police officers were dispatched to a, a private residence because of some report of weapon disturbance. Um, and they entered uh, John Lawrence's apartment and they observed him with another man, Tyrone Garner, having sex. The police arrested both of them. They were held in custody overnight and charged the next day uh, with a deviant sexual intercourse, uh, which was, you know, the, the statute. Um, the Texas statute uh, made it a crime to have any contact between any part of the genitals of one person and the mouth or anus of another person. Once again, it didn't say we're criminalizing gay sex, but they only could enforce that against homosexuals. But here, you know, whereas before in Bowers, they framed the issue as, you know, whether the Constitution guarantees a right to homosexual sodomy. You know, that was the language they use. Here they framed it differently. So here they said, whether criminal convictions for adult consensual sexual intimacy in the home violate their vital interests in liberty and privacy protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That was the first question. And the short answer is yes, it does violate the section, the um, their vital interests in liberty and privacy, the, the sexual inter intimacy, um, you know, criminalizing that kind of sexual intimacy violates that right. And then they went on to ask, you know, whether Bowers v. Hardwick should be overruled. And they also answered that yes. And it's a really great opinion to go back and, and read um, because once again, Justice Kennedy announced the opinion for a 6-3 majority um, of the Supreme Court. He traces the 14th Amendment's development and the development from Griswold, you know, which we, we just talked about with the, uh, uh, the right to contraception for married couples, subsequent case Eisenstadt, and, and extending that right to um, at least heterosexual couples, even unmarried heterosexual couples, he talks about uh, Roe v. Wade and the and its basis in the 14th Amendment, and then a couple of cases, Kerry and Casey, and he talks about this Casey decision. He said this, the Casey decision again confirmed that our laws and tradition afford constitutional protection to personal decisions relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, child rearing, and education. So, you know, once again, here, whereas the, Bear, the the Bowers court, you know, looked at those factors and just said, well, homosexual sex is different. You know, Kennedy didn't buy into that. And he, um, uh, and, and the, the majority opinion said, you know, no, this is about intimacy, sexual intimacy and that as, as, as a protectable um, interest. And, you know, you can kind of see the thinking and looking back at, you know, Kennedy's decision in in Romer v. Evans, it's not surprising that he's not going to treat sexual intimacy between homosexual couples um, differently or, or as less valuable than sexual intimacy between heterosexual couples. Um, and they are related. They're all related to, to those relationships. 
Intimacy is intimacy, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think he also went through and really questioned and, and refuted, you know, a lot of the Bowers case was there was all this language about, well, you know, it's been uh, it's been against the law to have uh, gay sex since, uh, you know, for centuries. There's all these kind of pronouncements by the Bowers case. And 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 Kennedy said, you know, the ba Bowers really misapprehended the issue of, you know, whether there was a right to gay sex. The real issue is that the constitutionality of statutes that seek to control a personal relationship that, you know, whether or not entitled to formal recognition in the law is within the liberty of persons to choose without being public punished as criminals, you know, and right again, when he says whether or not entitled to formal recognition in the law, that's a that's a prelude to the marriage cases, right? Because yeah, at the time in 2003, there was no right to for for homosexuals to get married. But he's saying it doesn't matter whether the law formally recognizes their relationship, you still can't treat this intimacy as a criminal matter. And then he also he kind of disputed the the historical premises of Bowers, you know, uh, and he once again repeats some of what Stevens said in, in the previous case in, in Stevens' dissent, um, that, you know, these laws aren't getting enforced against heterosexual couples. They're they're only used as a as a, as a bludgeon against the, the gay community. And then I I, I want to read this like kind of summing up the the final um, holding in, in Lawrence because Kennedy go ba goes back and he quotes Stevens' dissent in Bowers. So he says, dissenting in Bowers, Justice Stevens concluded, quote, our prior cases make two propositions abundantly clear. First, the fact that the governing majority in a state has traditionally viewed a particular practice as immoral is not a sufficient reason for upholding a law prohibiting the practice. Neither history nor tradition could save a law prohibiting miscegenation from constitutional attack. Second, individual decisions by married persons concerning the intimacies of their physical relationship, even when not intended to produce offspring, are a form of liberty protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Moreover, this protection extends to intimate choices by unmarried as well as married persons. And so that was, that was a quote from Stevens' dissent in Bowers. And Kennedy said this, Justice Stevens' analysis, in our view, should have been controlling in Bowers and should control here. Bowers was not correct when it was decided, and it is not correct today. Bowers v. Hardwick should be, and now is, overruled. So I think that's a really, you know, one, it's great that Kennedy basically adopted Stevens' thinking. It's, um, it's also an interesting thing to as you're reading Supreme Court cases, or if, if, if you get into reading Supreme Court cases, you know, the dissent is often the losing side and they're kind of discounted, but sometimes a dissent grasps on an idea which is later taken up by a, a later majority in the court. And here, Stevens was ahead of his time and, and Kennedy recognized that. Yeah, but only by 17 years. That's not a lot of time in these type of things, I think. And I really think that, and I agree with you, Stevens making sure that he goes back, or that not Stevens, sorry, who wrote that? Oh, Kennedy, the Kennedy, Kennedy opinion? Yeah, Kennedy goes back and quotes Stevens is a beautiful thing. And I think it's a beautiful thing for all queer people that, you know, in 2003, finally, you know, our relationships, even though they're not 
you know, at this point, still most states you can't get married, at least they're not criminal anymore. And that provides a lot of, and that is a big change in the attitude in this country. And it's, it's a big shift and it's really important. It's very monumental. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's not, it's actually not that long ago. I mean, Lawrence was 2003. That was 18 years ago. Where were you in 2003? Where was I? I was in, uh, I was in Tucson, Arizona in law school. Yeah, I was in Apache Junction, Arizona. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, raising kids, doing life and all that type of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's not that long ago for us, you know, and I think, you know, it's easy to take these things for granted, you know, as we look back on them from 2021 and say, you know, hey, you know, I can marry whoever I want. I can be in a relationship with whoever I want. But, you know, in our lifetime, that wasn't always the case. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Bowers was decided in 86. I think in some respects, you can see Bowers as like one of the last gasps of U.S. culture, you know, codifying discrimination in a way, you know, at least in terms of the uh, criminal law. It's a shame that it took 17 more years before that case gets overturned, but at least it did. So, you know, I'm thinking maybe that's a good place for us to stop for this episode. You know, we've we've kind of covered that first um, that first third of, of, of how we were going to break this down. And we also, we kind of introduced some ideas. You know, we talked a little bit about the 14th Amendment. We talked a little bit about the Griswold case. I think, you know, we could actually do a deep dive on Griswold. And I, and I think that's really important case, this right to privacy and how it was articulated in, in Griswold, because it forms a basis and is continually cited in some of these other cases. So, I don't and know. How maybe... many times do I text you or talk to you about like, what about Griswold? What? Never mind Roe. What about Griswold? I know it's one of your favorite words. <laughs> well, for a lot of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, I let, let's think about that. You know, maybe what we need to get to the marriage cases. And I think that's actually a good, another good story, another arc of, of, of jurisprudence to discuss. But maybe next time we should, you know, talk about Griswold a little bit and and uh, and how that forms the basis for some of these cases. Well, you're driving the content on these things. This is definitely as the lawyer and putative general counsel for the Transformation Thursday Podcast Network. I will definitely take your take your lead. Well, great. So, well, this has been fun. I really I really like doing this. So we should keep it up. I definitely agree with you. So, well, once again, Jamie, it is. A Sunday evening and it is late. Somebody may have had a little bit of a headache when we jumped on. So thank you for giving me the space to work through that. I definitely, after some Tylenol and a big jug of water here, I feel a lot better. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh... Yep, yeah, it happened. So, well, let's call it a night and we will wrap up for now. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Transformation Thursday. Good night, everyone. Good night.